Morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. Let's pray, shall we? Father, this morning, we continue in this series entitled God in Our Midst. And we want to thank you that you are indeed here with us this morning. Lord, we are in the presence of a holy God. This morning as we look at this bronze altar, Lord, and what it signifies, what it points to, we pray again that you might just have... um, you might just have grace upon us, that you might help us to understand and grasp in a deeper way the significance of sacrifice, of the sacrifice that has been made for us through Jesus Christ. That, Lord, this morning as we hear from your word, that our minds and our hearts will be clear. They'll be attentive to what you would have to say to us today. Lord, convict us in our hearts. Lord, help us to know the very things that you want to speak to us about this morning. For you, we know, indeed, want to speak to us. We thank you for that. We pray this morning, Lord, as we open up this passage together, that Jesus Christ might be honoured and glorified. Amen. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, wages are featured a lot in the news this week, haven't they? Those of you who have sort of been across the news a bit bit this week, you'll know that there's been uh, penalty rates and wages and things like that discussed in uh, in the media. When we think about wages, we, we understand them to be those things which are owing to us because of the work that we've done. We work, we get paid. They're our wages. But the Bible clearly states that when it comes to uh, the things that we've done, the work that we've done, the, the sin that we've committed before God, then we have something owing to us for that. And that is death. We all deserve to die because of our sin. a kind of a real sort of, you know, cloud down on everything, doesn't it? And you might think this morning as we start off this message and we we think about sin and the fact that it deserves death, you might think, well, you know what, gee, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Last week as we began this series on the tabernacle, we focused on the fact that God is a holy God. That his holiness points to his absolute perfection, his absolute purity, his absolute goodness, his absolute glory, his absolute justice and righteousness, his separateness or his apartness from everything else. Nothing can come in, in, you know, even close to this holy God because he is so perfect and glorious and, uh, and, and, and righteous and just. He is so pure. 
If we liken God in his holiness to the sun, it is both good and terrifying at the same time. It brings heat and light in order for life to, uh, you know, to, uh, to grow and to, th- and to flourish. But it also has the capacity to kill anything that comes close to it. And because God is holy, it means that he is like that son and that he cannot have anything to do with sin. And as soon as we draw close, as soon as sin comes anywhere in the vicinity of God, it is consumed by his holy fire. His holiness naturally condemns and destroys sin and anything affected by it. Well then, ever hope to approach this holy God? How can we ever have ever hope to actually have any kind of relationship with Him, to come into His presence? Well, we discover how we do that through this imagery of the brazen altar in the tabernacle, this bronze altar. And we'll see this in what it ultimately points to. Peter has just read to us from Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through to 8, and it basically is just the uh, God's design for what this altar was meant to look like. As you entered into the tabernacle's outer courtyard, you know, through the, uh, first of all, through that, uh, that, that white curtain, that white curtained off area, you went through the entrance curtain, which was a beautiful tapestried curtain of blue and uh, of purple and of scarlet, the colours we have behind us here this morning. And as we, you walked into the, uh, the entrance of that courtyard area where the tabernacle itself, the tent of the tabernacle was situated, the first thing that you encountered was this bronze altar. The largest of all the temple furniture and it, and it struck you in its size and, uh, and, and in its presence right there as you walked in. It was also known as the, the altar of burnt offering. And it was the place of sacrifice. In fact, that term altar actually means the place of slaughter. It was constructed, as we're told, of acacia wood, a very strong, hardy wood. And it was covered in bronze. It's interesting to note that many scholars sort of look at uh, at, at this significance behind the fact that it was made of bronze or or coated in bronze as that bronze speaks of God's judgment in Scripture. We see that, uh, you know, pictured on uh, on a couple of occasions, particularly the uh, the the uh, the encounter of the bronze serpent there in Numbers 21, how the people had sinned against God and God had sent these snakes into the uh, into the camp and people had been bitten by them and uh, God said to Moses, "I want you to make a, a bronze serpent and hold it up, and whoever looks on that serpent will be healed." in the imagery of Jesus Christ in all of his glory and majesty in Revelation it speaks about his feet of burning bronze that he comes to, uh, to bring that judgment on the world we're told that it was five cubits square and its height shall be of three cubits basically 2.3 metres square by 1.4 metres high and on top of its corners were, were horns covered in bronze as well had a bronze grate that was placed about halfway down on the inside on which the, uh, the, the sacrifices were placed. 
And at the same level, there was a, a bit of a, uh, a ledge around the outside of it and the rings were placed on that and the poles were placed to it so it could be actually carried by the priests whenever the camp was to, whenever they would have moved camp. It was most probably sat atop a, uh, a mound of, uh, an earth mound, if you like, on either side so that underneath could be, could be the, the fire and they could continually stoke that fire because God told, says to Moses in Leviticus 6, 12 to 13 that the fire must never go out. It was God himself who had, initi- who had first started that fire and that fire was to blaze you know, for continuously, day and night, speaking of the fact that God's judgment is... Always on sin. As we look at this bronze altar this morning, I want to focus on four specific things or four important aspects that it teaches us about how we are to approach this holy God or how we can approach this holy God. And the first of those we're going to look at this morning is sacrifice. You've got your notes that you got this morning, you can follow along with those. So the first thing this altar teaches us is that there is no approaching a holy God without sacrifice. There is no coming into the presence of God without first there being a sacrifice for sin. And it was on this altar that the various sacrifices were offered to God. Those sacrifices, by the way, are listed out in Leviticus chapter 1 through to 6. As we've been saying, the penalty of sin requires that there must be a death. There must be a shedding of blood. Life must be poured out. And this altar was the place of death. Can you imagine it? As you walked into the the outer courtyard, there was the the altar, the fire blazing away, the smoke pouring off it, the uh, the blood of the animals, the butchered animals themselves, you know, the uh, the the smell of burning flesh and things like that. It was it would have been a gruesome sight, an incredibly gruesome sight to see. If anyone's ever been round, you know, uh, the uh, a slaughtering of an animal. You know how gruesome it can get. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, what God is saying here is that I am giving you this particular means, this means of sacrifice in order to make atonement for your souls, for your sins, because the blood needs to be poured out. It is the blood that makes atonement, the death of something. Innocent victim had to die. In this case, it was an animal. It had to have its blood shed in order that sin could be paid for or atoned for. Covered over is what that word atonement means. We see something similar in Hebrews 9.22 where it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Did you hear that? Without the shedding of blood... Without the giving of a life, there is no forgiveness of sins. Which tells us that God takes sin very, very seriously. 
His holiness demands justice. Sin must be paid for. And so God provided a means by which an animal could be killed and butchered. And then, depending on the type of sacrifice, either all of it or part of it was burnt up there on the offering of burnt sacrifice on this bronze altar. And that consuming by fire pictures the judgment of God being poured out. Hebrews twelve twenty eight speaks about the fact that uh, that uh, God, our God is a consuming fire. You feeling a little bit unsettled at the moment? But what God was also wanting to point to through this particular sacrifice of this innocent animal was in fact a better sacrifice. It was meant to point the people of God beyond the, the, the animal sacrifice to a better sacrifice. It was a shadow. Remember we spoke about last week about the whole tabernacle precinct as a shadow, okay, as, a, as a kind of a type, if you like. Well, this bronze altar was, was a shadow of, of something which was to come, something the, the real thing that was to come, and that was Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4 says this, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, that is, these animal sacrifices, it cannot make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus himself is the better sacrifice. John the Baptist, in his early ministry, in his ministry, he, uh, you know, he was there baptizing in the River Jordan, and as Jesus came to uh, towards him, he points the people to him and he says, "Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." John himself recognized the fact that Jesus was indeed that better sacrifice, that he would indeed be the Lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice who would take upon himself. All of the punishment for our sins. See, Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus, in his death on the cross, in him shedding his blood for us, paid for our sins once and for all. And therefore, no other sacrifice is now necessary. Jesus on the cross took upon himself there on that cross all of the sins of the world for all time. Can you think about just even today all the evil and all the wickedness and all the sin that is prevalent in our world today and all the horrible and tragic and devastating consequences that brings in people's lives? From the beginning of time, 
to the end of time, all of the sins committed during that period of all people, Jesus there on the cross took all of that sin upon himself. And then God poured out his righteous judgment upon Christ on the cross. God exhausted all of his holy wrath and anger upon Jesus there on that cross because of our sin. Hebrews 10, 12 says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Someone to sit down, for a priest to sit down meant that his job was completely completely done. It was finished. Hence in the tabernacle, and we'll see that this see this in, in a few weeks' time, the priests never sat down. There was nowhere for the priests to sit anywhere within that tabernacle precinct because they were always working. There was always work to be done. There was always sacrifice to be made. But it says when Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, our great high priest, sat down at the right hand of God. And Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that brings us to our second point this morning. That not only do we think about sacrifice here at this bronze altar, but we also think of substitution. Because we cannot pay for sins, our, our sins ourselves. We cannot pay for our own sins ourselves or we would be completely destroyed by God's holy wrath and his judgment. As we've been saying, the altar pointed to the fact that a death has to occur. So when the repentant sinner, when the repentant Israelite would come to the temple, they would bring with them an offering, an animal. And at the, at, the, at the entrance, the priest would come and they would check over that animal to see whether or not it was, it was actually suitable to be sacrificed. The animal had to be perfect, without spot or blemish. It couldn't be one of the, you know, the, 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 the animals from the herd that was, you know, blind or it was lame or it was, you know, it was, you know, these, uh, you know, had bad teeth or anything like that. It had to be perfect. It had to be the best of the best. And the priest would check the animal over and then if he, if he was given the okay, they would take the animal to the altar. And they would, they'd symbolically, the person would then lay their hands. They would put their hands on the head of that sacrifice and they would confess their sins over it. And it was a symbolic transferring of their sins onto this animal that was to be killed. So we see this act of sacrifice had to be accompanied by confession of sins. There had to be a recognition on the part of the one bringing the sacrifice that they themselves were the guilty ones. That they themselves were sorrowful for their sins and knew that their sins must be atoned for to avoid the wrath of God. 
As the people brought the sacrifice, they came with grief and guilt, weighing them down in their hearts because of their sin before God. And we ourselves, folks, even today, we ourselves should be grieved by our sin. Two really in, you know, significant passages in the scripture. One, the first is in the Old Testament. David had become king. And in 2 Samuel chapter, sorry, in 2 Samuel, we, we read about David and he actually sees this woman Bathsheba who he actually, you know, desires to have, even though she's not his wife. And so he allows his desires to run rampant and he commits sin with Bathsheba. And God sends the prophet Nathan to David and he confronts him about his sin. And David is, all of a sudden, is made clear in his mind and his heart that he has sinned before a holy God. And in Psalm 51 verse 4 it says, he says this, he says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He realises that yes, he sinned with this woman, but, but ultimately his sin is against God. And all of our sin is ultimately against God. Peter's wonderful sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he speaks to the people there and gathered in Jerusalem about the, uh, about the Jesus Christ, about the God's Messiah and the fact that they have killed him. And when the people realize the gravity of what they have done and the sin, their sin before them, they are just cut to the heart, we read in Acts. And they say to Peter, brothers, what should we do? What on earth can be done? We, what hope do we have now? Peter says, repent. Be baptised. Follow Jesus. He's the sacrifice for your sins. We need to be grieved by our sins. We need to be cut to the heart by our sin. I think oftentimes we, we treat sin so flippantly, like we treat God. We just go about living our lives and thinking, oh yeah, well God's a forgiving God, he'll forgive my sin, it's okay. And the reality is that our sin is an offence towards God. If you've ever done something to someone you know, who you really love and you've, you've caused them offence, you've caused them hurt. And you know the grief I'm talking about, don't you? We grieve when we hurt those closest to us. But yet we don't grieve over our sin against God, the one who was willing to give everything for us, the God who is perfect and holy and righteous and just. Having confessed their sins, they would then slit the throat of the animal and the priest would catch the blood in a bowl. 
And then he applies some of the blood to the horns of the altar, symbolizing the, the power of God to make atonement, to cover over their sins. It's interesting that in Luke chapter 1, verse 69, Jesus is referred to as the horn of our salvation. He is the strength of our salvation, the one who is only, he's the only one who has the power and strength to, to accomplish salvation for us. The person came, they realized that their sin was so great that it would cost this animal its life. What if the sacrificial system was still going on today? And every time we sinned, and we had to come before God to find, to find forgiveness for our sins, we had to bring an animal and we had to slaughter that animal before God. Now, I know that a lot of people here, a lot of you love animals. You've got animals for pets. What if it meant that you bringing along your pet? We've got a dog, Fozzie. He's a Labradoodle. He's a gorgeous dog. Yes, I'm biased. But if God said that I had to bring him along, he had to die for my sin, I'd be heartbroken. I think we would grieve more over killing our animals than we actually grieve over the fact that Christ died on the cross. Isn't that true? God himself died for us. The animal was the substitute for the person in these Old Testament Testament days in the tabernacle. It was the innocent substitute for the person for their sin. But today we have Christ, God himself, the all-glorious, all-magnificent Christ. Who gave himself for you and for me. He suffered and died in our place, in your place, for your sin and for my sin. Substitutional. Sorry, I'm a bit slack with this, aren't I? We cannot pay for our sins ourselves. The repentant sinner Cain, they placed their hands on the head of the the sacrifice, confessed their sins. And yes, we should be grieved by our sin because it is an offence to a holy God. But yet God graciously provided a way for the person's sin to be paid for without having to die themselves. That was what this whole sacrifice was about. Here in this, we see a a picture of the grace of God to the people of Israel saying, you don't have to pay for your sins yourselves. I've provided a means of sacrifice for now. I will cover over your sins. I'm not going to turn a blind eye to them. They're just going to be covered over for now. But I'm looking forward to a future time when Christ will come and ultimately he will pay for sin completely. A substitute. Of course, animals could never ever be a proper substitute for mankind, could they? 
particularly when we think about it, an animal's life really isn't the same as a human being's life, is it? No, it's not. So ultimately, an animal could not pay for our sins. It had to be someone like us. But yet someone who was perfect. The sin could never, ever be done away with. It was only a substitute. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 that in, the, in Jesus' sacrifice we have a sacrifice that perfectly meets all of the law's demands that he was indeed like us but he was without sin Hebrews 2 17 says therefore he had to be made like his brothers like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people He was the only one who could do it. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us, who can actually make payment for our sins. There's no other way. If you're thinking there in your seat this morning that you can do enough good stuff in your life to earn God's approval and God's favour and cancel out all the bad stuff in your life, I've got bad news for you. It's not enough. In fact, you can never, ever do enough to cancel out your sin before God. No matter how many good acts you do, no matter how nice you are, no matter how morally upright a person you try to be, you can never, ever, ever do enough to cancel out the sin in your life. And therefore, when you stand before a holy God, which we will all do one day, you will stand before a holy God and God will say, you have now got to pay for your sins and God's wrath and his anger will be poured out on you for eternity in hell. And you say, God, that's not fair. And God will say to you, I gave you the sacrifice that was needed. And what did you do with him? You turned your back on him. You made your bed and now you've got to lie on it. Because God's perfect righteousness must be met. Speaking of God, speaking of that, we need to speak. We need to go next. Sorry, Hebrews two two seventeen was that verse I actually read to you just uh, just earlier. But going on, we need to speak about satisfaction. Satisfaction. We don't like to think about God as being an angry God. In fact, we'd much rather focus on his love and grace and mercy. And yet, as we've been saying, God's holiness and his righteousness demand that evil and wrongdoing and sin be punished. God's justice must be satisfied. Our sins have to be paid for and his anger appeased. And that's where sacrifice comes in. Specifically, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By the way, there's a theological term for that. It's called the penal substitution, the doctrine of penal substitution.
a substitutionary sacrifice must be put in place in order that our sins be paid for. And in Christ dying on the cross, he was the one who met the righteousness, the righteous demands of God's holiness. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 26 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God himself put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's that word again, propitiation. We'll come to that in a minute. To be received by faith. In other words, God provided the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And the, re- the way we actually um, take, be, we, we get the benefits of that sacrifice is through faith, is putting our faith and trust in Jesus as, our, as the one who is our sacrifice. And the Apostle Paul goes on to write, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or in his divine patience, God had passed over the former sins. Okay, So these sins of the people in the Old Testament, the sacrifices and that sort of stuff that were made, it didn't actually completely forgive the people. All it did was it just covered over those sins for the time being. It averted God's wrath for the time being until Jesus would come and die on the cross. It was to show God's righteousness because God couldn't turn a blind eye to the sin. He knew that sin had to be paid for ultimately. So he needed to continue in his righteousness. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. In other words, he might be true to himself, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, the one who makes us clean and pure like him. That term propitiation, sorry, there's the Romans 3, 23 to 26. That word propitiation says this. It means to appease or to satisfy. What needs to be appeased or satisfied? God's wrath, God's anger needs to be appeased. We are unable to do anything to turn away God's anger. We've already established that. And yet he himself provides the way. It was God's, sorry, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, we see in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the one to satisfy his righteousness and his holiness. It was God's anger and wrath that needed to be propitiated or satisfied and God's love that did the propitiating or the satisfying in itself. One biblical scholar states this, man is alienated from God by sin and God is alienated from man by his wrath. It is in the substitutionary death of Christ that sin is overcome and God's wrath averted so that God can look on man without displeasure and man can look on God without fear. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and God in his love Because remembering, God is also perfect in love as well. So his love and his justice somehow have got to be worked out. They've got to be, there's this tension there. And the way that 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 tension is solved is in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And through faith in Jesus, as we put our trust in him, as we accept him as our sacrifice, as we recognise and confess our sin before God and our need for Jesus Christ to put our faith and trust in him, then we, our sins are forgiven and we can be placed in a right relationship with God. We no longer have to fear his anger and his condemnation anymore. Isn't that good news? Faith in Christ, our sins are paid for and forgiven. We're reconciled to God. But also what happens is that we are also made holy. We are then, we've got then, our sins are removed, taken away, and in their place we are given the righteousness of Christ. And that's how we can approach a holy God because our sins God has removed completely. We're no longer sinful in his sight. In fact, we are righteous as Christ is righteous in his sight. And because we are holy, the last thing we need to speak about very, very quickly is this whole aspect of this this altar speaking of surrender. Because sacrifice, by necessity, means a whole giving of oneself. And when we, put our, when we ask Jesus Christ to be the substitute for our sin, the sacrifice for our sin, we are saying to him, I am now giving myself wholly and completely to you. And I'm going to follow you from now on. And yes, I'll muck up from time to time and I'll fall and I'll make mistakes and, I'll, and I will sin. But, but you're, because I know you've paid for my sin on the cross, that's all been dealt with. See, to come to the altar meant the laying down of a life. And Jesus, as he went to that altar of the cross, he was willing to lay down his life for you and for me. He himself held nothing back. He held nothing back in order that we could have our sins forgiven and be brought into the holy and glorious embrace of God, the loving embrace of God. On the altar of the cross, Jesus' blood was poured out and he died so that we might live. And the new life that he gives is meant to be lived in the knowledge that we are now new creations. We are now God's children. As we're told in Second Peter, we are in fact a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And that means then each day we need, to, we need to continually surrender our wills and our desires to God. Because sin hasn't let go of us yet. Even though our sins have been paid for, we still have this sinful, human, fallen nature within us. And God is working to transform us from the inside out, but we are going to battle with this sinful nature for the rest of our, for the rest of our earthly lives. And so it means for us day by day coming again to the altar of the cross and laying our lives down before Jesus and saying, I want to follow you. I no longer want to follow the desires of my heart. I no want, no longer want to follow the desires and the passions of this world. I want to live for you. Because of all that you've done for me. 
I want to live for you. And so I come day by day surrendering, giving over, giving over my life to Jesus Christ and saying, you live your life through me. Please. And whenever we are faced with sin and temptation in our lives, we have then got to come to the foot of the cross and we've got to then say, no, I have surrendered to Jesus Christ. I am surrendering myself to him, not to these other ways anymore. And we've got to fight against it with all the strength that God gives us in our hearts and in our bodies. We've got to fight against it. Fight and fight and fight. Keep running that race. Surrendering day by day. Will you lay down your life for the one who is willing to lay down his life for you? Will you be willing to do that? I'm going to come round the communion table now. I'm going to ask the stewards if they'd like to come forward. To the table that the Lord Jesus himself instituted for his followers. Because in a sense, this morning, we also are now coming to an altar. A place that speaks of sacrifice. The bread speaking of the body of Christ and the the, the juice speaking of the blood of Christ, it speaks of sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice for you and for me. The fact that he would take on himself a body and that body would be would be beaten and scourged and 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 humiliated. To an extent that I don't think we could even begin to grasp in our minds the agony and the suffering that that body of Christ endured. And the blood poured out, the, the giving of life. It's a place that speaks of sacrifice. The elements I say speak of death and of life, of forgiveness, but of restoration. And Jesus is inviting all of us this morning, all who have recognised their sin and their need for him as their substitute, as their sacrifice, to come and partake of these elements. To remember afresh again today what it cost Jesus for our salvation. What God was prepared to do on our behalf. That he couldn't turn a blind eye to our sin, that it had to be paid for, but in his love, he made the way possible by giving himself. As we come this morning, we remember again God's love. We remember his holiness. It's a time where we can again come and confess our sins before God. To give thanks for his salvation but also to surrender afresh to the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. So after I pray, we're going to hand out the elements. I invite you, as I said before, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your substitute for your sins, to take these elements, to to eat of the bread, remembering of what Christ has done for you, of remembering that holiness of God, but also surrendering afresh today to God yourself.
It might be that at the moment, you know, you've just perhaps gotten a bit off track with your Christian life. You've gotten a bit far away from God. Here's your opportunity to have that relationship restored again, to be reconciled and to walk out of this place this morning in a newness of life in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for this table which the Lord Jesus himself instituted with his disciples and said that we, that we as his followers were to continually um, celebrate this communion because it speaks of indeed his death and his resurrection on our behalf for our sins. We pray as we partake of these elements this morning that you would just impress upon our hearts again, Lord, the sins which we have committed against you Lord, that we might confess them before you if we haven't already done so. And that we might also be reminded of the fact that Jesus has paid for those sins, that they're done away with in your mind, completely forgiven. That we can rejoice in that. But that also, Lord, because of that, because of our thankfulness in our hearts and our love for you, we will want to surrender even more to you today. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.